0: and I've got the baby so I decide I'm just going to throw a towel on the carpet and I'm going to change the baby on the floor. It's clean so put the towel down, I get on the floor I change the diaper and then I lay on the carpeting I'm on my back laying on the carpeting next to the crib and I hold Emily up like this so I'm on the floor and she's up and I'm looking at the ceiling and I notice something that was Stunning, positively stunning. For the first time, I could see the mobile from the baby's point of view. I could see what she saw when she looked at the mobile. And guess what? The baby looking up could not see any faces, could not see the t-shirts. All she could see was the undersides of paws, and bellies, and hoofs and chins. That's all she saw. I could not get that letter written to Fisher-Price fast enough. <laughs> my dog, I bought the mobile. My kid wouldn't look in the mobile. I was upset with my child. What I learned through that episode was that it was terribly disappointing, seriously disappointing. What I learned from that episode was that the toy the mobile, the the Winnie the Pooh Fisher-Price mobile, it was not designed for the user. It was designed to appeal to the purchaser. It was charming from the adult's standpoint. I have thought of that moment, that episode, a number of times in my career. And when I ultimately decided to leave public education, and by the way, I didn't leave Mountain Lakes because Mountain Lake, the people were wonderful to me. There are wonderful educators in that community. What I left was public education. And I left because I didn't feel that in my lifetime I would be able to make that system or any public system designed for the end user. And when I was at Penn working on my doctorate, I spent a lot of time visiting schools and looking at the different ways that schools organize themselves. Spent time at public schools, independent schools, Episcopal schools, Hebrew day schools, single-sex schools, you know, Montessori, Waldorf, Quaker, um, and I discovered that there are schools that are designed for the child, and there are schools that are not. Who'd have guessed? This school is designed for the end user. And I'll talk a little bit about what that looks like, what that means. Um, First, I want to talk to you a little bit about the brain, the child's brain, the brain of the learner. I don't know if any of you have seen this ad. This ad ran in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal a number of years ago. It's an ad for Allstate. And it says, why do most 16-year-olds drive like they're missing part of their brain? And then the byline is because they are okay. There's some sarcasm here, but there's also some accurate neuroanatomy here. Okay, the little hole in the brain is actually close to the prefrontal cortex. Okay, and here's here's essentially what um, what the ad represents. When I was 23. I was a college graduate. I was in the military. It was Vietnam. I was stationed in Texas. My girlfriend was teaching second grade in a Boston suburb. And I, for the first time in my life, went to rent a car. So this is, what, 40 years ago? Do any of you remember the first time you went to rent a car? Anybody remember anything unusual happening? Let me tell you what happened to me. I'm in Texas. My company commander is pleased with something I've done for the company. He says, Doug, here's a five-day pass and military transport. I can't get to Boston fast enough. Haven't seen my girlfriend in six, eight months. Not sure She's not sure whether we'd ever see each other again. I get to the airport. I land at Logan Airport early in the morning. I mean, I'm in full dress uniform, and I'm thinking, I'm going to get a car. I'm going to drive to her elementary school in Newton, Mass. I'm walking into that classroom. Those second graders are going to see an embrace that they will remember for the rest of their lives. But first, I have to rent a car. So I get to the car dealership, and a nice young woman behind the counter says, what would you like? I say, it doesn't matter. Any car. Whatever you have, quick. Whatever you have. She says, "Okay. well, I have. I forget what she has. I said, I'll take it. It's great. She says, I need identification. So I give her my military ID, I'm in uniform, and I give her my, at the time, New York State driver's license. She gets the information and she says, I'm sorry, sir, I cannot rent you a car. At the time, I thought this was an anti military thing because at the time, you know, now, regardless of how we feel about our wars, Iraq or, Af- or Afghanistan, we we honor the soldier. We may disagree with the war, but we honor the soldier. Back in Vietnam, if you were in uniform, you were considered a sellout. I loved my country. I wasn't going to Canada. Didn't believe in the war. Served. So I had had this kind of anti-military backlash before. And I said, you know, why can't you rent me a car? She said, I'm sorry, sir. You're not old enough. I'm 23 years old. I'm a college graduate. I'm in the military. I'm not old enough? She said, no, we can't, re- we can't rent cars to drivers under the age of 25. Anybody remember that? OK. Well, um, you know, I don't want to take it out on this woman, but I mean, I need the car. I, mean, I got a sec- second grade classroom I've, I've got to explode into. So I said, you know, um, ma'am, I know it's not your fault. I want to give you a hard time. But trust me, I am authorized to drive armored tanks I'm just looking for a Ford Pinto, you know, for 48 hours. I, I'm not over my head in that. Can't rent me a car. Couldn't rent me a car. Nobody can rent me a car. I tried all of them. No one would rent me a car. Why not? Why can you not rent a car until you're 25 years old? It's still largely the same. There, You can buy up now. You military have exceptions, but who decided that Renting a car to someone under 25 is a bad business model. Who decided that? Insurance, insurance company. Insurance because they had 40 years ago. Insurance companies knew that renting a car to a 24-year-old is a bad idea because they don't have the judgment. The car comes banged up, back banged. Okay, so that was based only on math, on numbers. Back then, we had the data, and the data numbers didn't lie. But we didn't know why. We didn't know why. We didn't know why, unfortunately for me, we didn't have the why until a few years after my son you know, became 25, 26. When my son was in high school, senior in high school, he would ask for the car. I'd say, you can have the car. I want the car home at 11. My son would say, Dad, nobody comes home at 11. Why don't you trust me? I've never done anything. You know, that would cause you to distract, and he was correct. The, the, the only thing I could say in response was, son, I just don't, I don't trust the circumstances. Okay? Well, fast forward, the 1970s, 1980s, access to the brain for research purposes, okay, before had been x-ray technology, which is not all that helpful because the brain is almost entirely soft tissue, so x-rays don't reveal much except an occasional bullet in a crime lab investigation. But what we had to study the brain was we had post-mortem dissections. And in studying the brain through post-mortem dissections, you're studying dead brains, often older, older brains, or younger but perhaps diseased brains. Okay. Um, now, you know, fast forward, we have... Oh, it right. Okay. We have sophisticated, non-invasive imaging techniques that allow a neuroscientist to stick a couple of electrodes on a, on a patient. It could, could be a young person, a healthy person, a person who's alive and awake. And we can ask this child to sing a song, remember an event in his life, perform a mathematical calculation... We can put this child through any number of mental or emotional exercises, and we can actually see on a computer screen. We can see the chemical pathway of thoughts and feelings as they are being thought and felt. Amazing. Okay. What we now know is that the part of the brain that controls judgment, okay, the part of the brain That has a mature understanding of consequences. That part of the brain is physically present. I mean, it's not like, where where am I here? Okay. That part of the brain is physically present. It's not reliably used. It's not reliably used until we're in our early to mid-twenties. So, you know, for me, when my son was asking me, Dad, why don't you trust me? I mean, if I knew then what I knew now, I can say to him, son, you know, I love you, Alex. I trust you. It's just that, son, you're actually missing part of your brain. The problem with that argument is that the part of the brain that's missing is the part of the brain that would be able to understand the argument. Okay, But this is the MIT Brain Lab. This is one of a number of experiments that I love uh, in terms of mapping the brain. This is a, uh, a highly accomplished Improv jazz pianist and what MIT asked jazz pianists to do was they would put them in a in a MRI and They would ask them to play a piece of music that had been pre-written and they had memorized So they're playing music that they wrote or someone else wrote and it's beautiful and they are Mapping the brain they're taking a look at what parts of the brain light up when this man is playing published music. They then ask him to play improv. Just, you know, go, go where your heart takes you. What's fascinating is not only that different parts of the brain light up during improv, during the creative act, it's not just that different parts of the brain light up, but more fascinating is the parts of the brain that control rules. Okay. Coloring in the lines. Okay, the parts of the brain that are that are employed by people who want to do the right thing, people who want to do what they're supposed to do. Okay. In school we call them pleasers. Parent pleasers, teacher pleasers. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with pleasing your parents, nothing wrong with pleasing your teachers. Where it becomes problematic is when that's all you do. Where you really don't know how to step outside the coloring book, step outside the rules, and just kind of let your thinking be a little more playful. Take a few intellectual, artistic, creative risks. Um, the parts of the brain that control rules are actually on chill. When he's playing improv, The responsible, reliable, rule-driven part of the brain is blue. He has had to learn how to put all that aside. My music teachers told me, don't do this. And he's doing it. And that is part of the creative act. Okay. Um, The brain, the human brain, is actually three. It's three brains. They communicate with each other sometimes, and sometimes they don't. Okay, the reptilian brain, the brain that, you know, the, that we share with reptiles, that's the first brain. What does the first brain run on? Instincts and urges. Babies cry when they're hungry. They were not taught to cry. Why does a baby cry when he's hungry? Because there's an instinct. Okay, it's the reptilian brain. It's an urge, inborn. Okay, a baby will cry when she's wet. Okay, she knows that it's not healthy, it's not safe. She could get you know, sick from being, from being wet instincts. Okay? That's the first brain. The third brain, the adult brain, okay? what, wh- how does that brain make decisions? The adult brain makes decisions based upon education, experience, memory. I and mean, the nice thing about, about the human brain is we remember things. If we had a bad experience, we did something and it was hurtful, we're not likely to do it again. So that's the brain that we start to use on a reliable basis when we're 15, 17, 19, 20, 23, and you can really start to count on it in the middle middle 20s. What's the brain? What's the definition of the brain in, in, in the classrooms in Far Hills? It's the limbic system. It's the middle brain. It's the brain we share with mammals. And what does that brain run on? What's the juice? What's the gasoline? What's the engine? It's not instinct, and it's not education. That brain runs on emotion. Now, be careful with the word emotion, because I'm speaking in terms of neurobiology. I didn't say the word feelings. Feelings are psychological events in the brain. When we're having a feeling, anger, sadness, joy, we generally know we're having a feeling. Emotions are neurological events in the brain. These are events in the brain that operate on our thinking and our decision-making and our feeling, very often without our knowledge. When we are aware, you've heard the term gut feeling? I have a gut feeling. What's a gut feeling? A gut feeling is when all the information lines up to do it, and you think, ah, something about it. There's something that tells me This is not going to be a good decision. This is not going to be a good. That is, that's part of the emotional brain, and we're aware of it. We're aware that it's actually operating on our thinking. When people think about thinking, they think that adult thinking is all about the intellect. It's all about the cortex. And it's not. And I'll talk to you a little bit about how how that would work. Oh, sorry. Okay. Our emotions are part of a survival program that's built into us. It's in our DNA. We're programmed to survive. The problem with humans is unlike any other living thing on the planet, human beings have a very long dependency period. Babies and children need their parents for a very long time. Most other animals can survive on their own in a matter of weeks or months. Humans share 97% of our chromosomes, with chimpanzees. Humans are more like chimpanzees than chimpanzees are like gorillas. And yet, a chimpanzee can sit up an hour after birth. A chimpanzee can follow an object in space with his or her eyes. It takes a human baby six months, seven months, to be able to sit up. So we have a very long period of time where we're somewhat helpless, but not totally helpless. Because we have a survival program built in us, babies are built; all humans are built to survive. Okay, so what what does what the survival program look like in children? How does it operate on their behavior, on their thinking, on their learning, on their becoming? Okay, one example of the survival program is we're all we we arrive on the planet with built-in fears. We have built-in fears. Why do we have built-in fears? Because built-in fears will keep us alive. It's smart to be afraid of certain kinds of things. Chimpanzees, which are like humans, chimpanzees raised entirely in captivity. Their whole life has been in a safe place like a zoo. They're terrified of snakes. Where'd that come from? Built-in. It's part of their survival program. I took my son to see my grandson to see Santa Claus. He'd never seen Santa Claus. I think he was two or three. Said to my daughter, "I'm going to take him to see Santa Claus." My daughter said, "Daddy, I think he's too young to see Santa Claus." I said, "Oh, sweetheart, come on. No child is too young to see Santa Claus. You know, let me take him to see Santa Claus." She said, "Okay, Dad, take him to see Santa Claus. You know, you should know what you're doing after all these years working with kids. Just, just make sure you get the picture." I said, "I'll bring home the picture." Okay. My daughter hasn't seen this picture. When? Where is it? <laughs> yeah, okay, what happened? What is that all about? Okay, that's all about a bit being afraid of things that are completely unfamiliar in his experience. Okay, and there is a reason for that, there's an, there's an evolutionary purpose to that. Okay. Uh, Children, what's every 10-year-old's greatest fear? When I say every 10-year-old, I mean across across cultures, across continents, across languages. Every 10-year-old on the planet, what is his or her greatest fear? Being separated from parents. Why? And parents represent their source of survival. They love their parents. Their parents bring a whole lot of good things into their lives, but in terms of neuro neurobiologically, okay, feelings that are not necessarily available to us consciously, children view their parents as survival appropriately. Okay? What's every 13-year-old's greatest fear? Across cultures, continents, languages, Every thirteen-year-old's greatest fear. It's only three years later. It's different. Hmm? Some say being seen with her parents. Uh, out in town with your parents. Yeah, I'm with my parents, but I really have my own place. You know, in Mendham, I have a cute little place in Mendham. But I, uh, you know, we get together. It's not bad. Um, every thirteen-year-old's greatest fear is loss of social standing. Loss of social standing, not to be accepted by peers, what happened? What happened in that two-year, three-year period? What happened? Why 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 did this child neurologically, emotionally and neurologically, why did she shift her source of survival attachment from her parents to her peers? What happened? Our ancestral legacy is what happened. Because even though we don't live this way anymore, 13-year-olds are not out on their own anymore. But for most of human history, for thousands of years, on the grasslands of Africa, when did you leave your parents, find a mate, and start a new tribe? When? Puberty. Social maturity occurred at the same time as Physical maturity, so there's that that wonderful line in Romeo and Juliet, where Juliet is promised to marry Paris. She doesn't want to marry him. She doesn't want to marry anybody, and her you know her father is a soft touch for her. Her mother is terribly embarrassed because her mother has a 13 year old unmarried daughter in Verona, which is a scandal. You know, hard to go to your bridge club or book club meeting when you've got this Juliet who's still home and single. Uh, and she begs her father, you know, to lift this marriage. And the father approaches his wife, Lady Capulet, and there's that fascinating line where he says, you know, ere 13 summers, ere, ere 14 summers, could we allow 14 summers to wither in their pride ere we find her ripe to be a bride? What happened is those children not consciously, not psychologically, but emotionally and neurologically. 13-year-olds believe that if they are not successful with their peer group, they will probably never be successful with their peer group. It is bizarre thinking, okay? We all went through it. All of us went through it. De- desperately needy, you know, obsessed with what the other kids think of them. And to make it worse, they also believe that the other kids are in fact thinking about them all the time. Okay. Um, okay, the second, you know, the second part of our emotional biology is the need for attachments. Humans are tribal people. We are not born to live alone. We can only survive in the company of others. Okay. And that's part of the teenagers need to be popular with his or her peers. Junior Scholastic magazine, they've been in business, I don't know, 40 or 50 years. I remember getting it and reading it when I was in eighth grade. They do a survey every year of eighth graders. And they ask the kids, what do you find to be the most stressful period of the day? And for the last 40 years, it's been the same answer. You know what it is? Lunch. Why is it lunch? Because lunch is sort of a graphic display of whether you're in or out, lunch is a graphic display of whether anyone wants to eat with you. And one of the things that was, you know, hurtful to me um, in being a public school superintendent was that I have never been in a public school, never, and I've been in hundreds, long career, I've never been in a public school in which the teachers ate in the same room at the same time as the kids. Because the contract requires that they have a separate private space so that they can have lunch in a separate private space. I have never been in an independent school in which the teachers did not eat in the same room at the same time as the kids. And that family style, where adults and kids are in the room together sometimes at the same table, that interrupts the peer culture. That's not to say that public education doesn't have adults in the lunchroom with kids, but they are generally paid lunch aides, and they do not have the same kind of organic relationship with the kids, so that they can manage and moderate the social environment in the room. But it's critical. Uh, okay. Am I am I going the wrong way? I'm going backwards. Okay. Okay, um, let, me, let me try to give you an example of how a child's brain operates. Um, this is probably not a, it's not a good slide. I couldn't, get, I couldn't find the picture I most wanted, but I remember one night I was trying to think of a way to illustrate the way a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old receives information and responds to it. And lo and behold, up comes a, a television segment on the news I guarantee you've seen one of these before. Horrifying to me. But here's the scene. The scene is um, 6 o'clock evening news. Local reporter in Connecticut, Hartford, uh, tells the audience that uh, she's with Sergeant Jim McHenry. And he's been stationed in Afghanistan for the last year. And he was scheduled to come home in Christmas time but his company came home a month early. And his children don't know. And he's going to surprise his son at school, in his son's sixth grade classroom. And we're all going to watch. Have you seen this? It's fairly popular. To me, it is a, it is a uniquely inappropriate thing for all of us to be watching. Because it's a, it's a private moment. Okay. But here's what happened in the, the first time I, I saw this. Um, the boy, Michael, he's 12. He's in his classroom. And uh, the reporter and the principal and dad, dad's in his fatigues, are walking down the hallway. And they're going to get to the room and open the door and walk in. The camera's going to show us Michael. I guarantee you that this 12-year-old boy has been told many times by everybody who loves him, This boy has been told, Michael, don't worry about daddy. Don't worry about daddy. Daddy is not anywhere near the fighting. Daddy's in the back. Daddy's in a safe place. I mean, of course, that's how you comfort this boy, whose father is far away. I can also guarantee you that that little boy, in the the quiet and darkness of his bedroom, on many occasions, has wondered whether he would ever see his father again. He's not stupid. He's 12, he's been on the planet long enough to know. So they walk into the classroom, and the camera pans Michael. What do you think Michael does? He sees his father. First thing he does, bursts into tears, bursts into tears, gushing. Second thing he does, a split second later, he puts his head in the crux of his arm, and he walks across the classroom, and he pushes Daddy into the hallway, where they have a private embrace. Not all that private because we're watching. Okay, so what just happened? What happened was children take information in through the limbic system. It comes in through the eyes, the ears, the sense of taste, or touch, whatever. Children take information in through one of the five senses, and it goes into the emotional brain first. And emotion is the first responder. A split second later, that information goes to the cortex. And it becomes cognitive, intellectual, fact, knowledge. So in Michael's brain, the first responding organ was, oh my oh my god, daddy is home, and he's here, and he's safe, and he's whole. A split second later, the intellectual response is, Oh my gosh, daddy's home. I am sobbing. And all my knucklehead buddies are watching this. And, you know, this is embarrassing. I don't want all of them to see me cry. The, the beauty of that episode, and I never show the video because it's, it's voyeurism. Uh, the beauty of that episode is it does show you what happens. When a child receives information, it goes to the the emotional brain first, all of it. Um, Where are we? Okay. So what I would say is that when information comes into the brain, a a code is attached. The um, the limbic system attaches a code. What do I mean by a code? The code is a split-second emotional response to the information. And the code could mean, well, this is interesting. Okay, that's a, you could get a favorable code. The information could be this is wonderful, um, uh, and then then the cortex the cortex responds. So, math anxiety. A lot of people have math anxiety. Math anxiety occurs when mathematics has been taught to kids, and the emotional brain was not comfortable, was not feeling safe, not feeling great about this. Not feeling great about the other kids watching me, not doing so well, not feeling good about the relationship between the teacher and the child at this moment learning math. Um, perfect example. Okay. Um, critical mission components in a school. If we, if we are looking to if we're looking to reach children intellectually and emotionally, and the two cannot be separated in the human brain, a couple of things are important. One of them is we need to know the child. You know, A child not well known is a child not well taught. At a school like this, every child is known individually. Every child is known. And the correct level of challenge and support is personalized for every child. Respect the child. My last two years in public education, uh, we did what the state required us to do, and that was prepare for standardized tests. Because now, in public education, and by the way, teachers wouldn't design this. Public school teachers are not happy about this. Believe me, you know, when, when, when I give this talk, public school teachers thank me for bringing to the attention of the audience the fact that they didn't design this system that's entirely focused on tests that measure skills Standardized tests are skills that are measured by a machine. Standardized tests measure skills that can be measured by a machine. So, you know, I spent some time, days actually, recording the percentage of questions that were asked in our classrooms that were asked at the simple recall level, simple knowledge. And it was about 92%. And that's the data. That's, those are the questions we're asking kids, recall questions. As opposed to what I saw here today, in which kids were asked, you know, was it first grade studying habitats, biomes? And the first graders studied the rainforest, and they studied the desert. And then the teacher asked them, if you were going to visit one of those two biomes, which would you choose and why? That's not a simple recall question. But skill in answering that kind of a question. Yeah, the real world will, will, will honor, recognize, celebrate that kind of skill. It's an analytical thinking. It's a, it's, it's a skill in which we take information, analyze it, evaluate it, make, make decisions and judgments about it. Spending time on skills like that does not raise your test scores. In the independent school community, we have been relieved from that burden. And in the independent school community, the people who decide what constitutes a quality education are educators. Educators make those decisions. More and more in public education, it's legislators who are making those decisions. OK, four levels of schooling, elementary, secondary, undergraduate, graduate, taught at all four. I will tell you that all four levels of schooling, all four, the currency involves knowledge, information, facts, skills. All four levels of school, we deal in information content. But in, in, in these years, we deal with something much more tenacious, foundational, forever powerful, and that is not just the development of a fact base, which is important, but what's happening here is the development of dispositions. What's a disposition? People confuse the word disposition with the word temperament. Temperament is genetic. Okay, Temperament is largely inherited. We choose puppies. We choose breeds of dogs. based upon the reliability of certain temperaments okay you want you want a love slob dog who will always love you get a lab you know you can neglect a lab they don't care you neglect a poodle boy you're going to get a lot of attitude but not a lab they forgive everything okay so temperament is it's present at birth it's sort of like your internal weather you know some people are some, some people, you know, arrive, because temperament is present at birth and it's largely stable throughout life. So some babies arrive, they're on the birthing table, the baby looks around, displeased, you know, on the planet for 84 years, somewhat displeased for the next 84 years. Okay, so the fact that temperament is largely, to some extent, fixed, that's good news for some people, not so good news for other people. Dispositions are learned behaviors. Dispositions are learned behaviors. We learn them. They are part of our thinking and feeling, perhaps forever. So, for example, okay, learning is about acquisition of knowledge, content, facts, skills, theories, the development of dispositions, mindsets, motivations, intuitions. Okay. The holy grail in my profession is the development of a lifelong learner. Okay, here are some dispositions. Resourcefulness. Resourcefulness is learned. Some kids know how to find stuff, know how to, know how to connect with people who help them find stuff, do stuff, learn cool stuff. All children are born curious. curious. Okay, so curiosity is present at birth. However, children become more or less curious, based upon the environment in which they learn in. If you have a school that's interested primarily in correct answers, you're preparing kids to ace the test. Okay, kids get the message. If that is the holy grail, a high score, you are likely not to celebrate that cheeky, iconoclastic 10-year-old who likes to think Things through in a different way. You know, where in a school like this, we love those kids. Those kids are fun and they can they can think a little bit different. We've got room for that. Okay. Um, optimism is in part inherited, but it's largely it's largely learned behavior. Kids learn optimism from adult role models as well as from lessons, in, including, including literature. Independence, charitability, happiness, morality—morality morality is learned behavior. Okay, um, and it's not, it's not intellectual behavior. You know, Bernie Madoff was the biggest crook in American history, not because he didn't take ethics courses in law school. Bernie Madoff was was disposed, intellectually neurologically disposed, to view other people as insignificant. Um, When I was the head of Greenwich Country Day School, had this experience many times, I'd be out greeting people, perhaps at open house or some community event. And a mother would come up to me. And the mother would have a a little one in tow. And the mother would say to me, Dr. Lyons, I'm just kind of curious, how long does it take to teach a child how to read? I think, OK, well, I think we she's probably talking about him. So I said, well, you know, um, it depends. Okay, First, you know, it depends upon your definition of reading. So for me, reading is, number one, the ability to decode the sound-symbol relationship in our language but to do so with a high degree of instant comprehension. And for me, reading also involves a certain amount of pleasure in the activity. That, to me, is really what reading is. Okay, so back to your question. How long does it take to teach a child how to read? Well, for the vast, vast, vast majority of children, it depends upon when you start. If you start at age three, you're probably going to do flashcards and workbooks. Probably going to be drill and practice. If you start at age three, it takes about three years. If you start at age four, it takes about two years. If you start at age five, it takes about a year. But the difference, but the difference, the critical difference between starting at age five, when a child is cognitively and emotionally ready okay, for that, for that skill, The difference between starting at age three and starting at age five is, when you start at age three, there's a high likelihood that you will achieve a really hollow victory. Because you may in fact generate an early reader, but it's likely to be a child who will never, never, as in never, a child who will never view reading as a truly pleasurable activity. Reading will always be work for that child. Weeding will always be about pleasing someone else. Okay. So dispositions are brain pathways. Up. Oh, I'm going. I'm having a hard time with this clicker. Okay. Let me let me keep moving ahead. Okay. Uh, wh- why is this important? Why is the development of a child's disposition so important? When I was in college, I used to. I went to lectures all the time. And I followed this nutty guy, intellectual guy, philosopher, futurist. His name was Marshall McLuhan. And I would go to his lectures. And I had a notebook. And I'd write all kinds of things down. So in 1970, I wrote this down. I had no idea what he was talking about. Made no sense to me in 1970. The future will not be about earning a living. The future will be about learning a living. I had no idea what that meant. Thought it sounded very cool. Figured he knows what it means. You know, I'll get a little older. I'll figure it out. Okay, let me tell you what this means. What this means is that up until really up until maybe the generation that's you know early thirties, mid thirties, um, for most of history, when you graduated from school, even professional school, so you graduate from med school, law school, dental school, engineering school, architecture school, whatever, you graduate. You're 26, 28, 30, 34. Okay. You have a diploma from a professional school. You had a right to believe that you had learned pretty much everything you would need to know for a long and successful career. That is not the case now, and it will be less so every decade. When I was a kid, I lived in Levittown. Grew up in Levittown, New York. And my pediatrician, he had the same house that we had at the end of the street, but his garage was the doctor's office. So if I was sick, my mother would walk me down to see Dr. John. Well, Dr. John is getting into his 60s. He brings in another doctor, his son, Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob's 35. I distinctly remember my mother, who was never rude, except in the doctor's office, when she would bring little Douglas in for a checkup or a near infection. And she'd have a choice between Dr. John, 65 years old, all less occurrence, or Dr. Bob, who just got out of med school. And my mother looked at Dr. Bob. And I'm sure she thought his medical kit was a Fisher-Price purchase. But my mother would say to the nurse, I don't want I don't want the boy doctor. I don't want his son looking at my child. So I got Dr. John. Why did my mother want the older doctor? Experience. You know, his son can't compete with the experience. OK, fast forward. Today, a woman takes her daughter to a pediatric group. It's mother-daughter. Okay, It's Dr. Karen, who's 65 years old, and her daughter, Dr. Ellen who's 35. The child is really, really in pain. Who would the mother hope, who does the mother want to see her child? The doctor with all the years of experience or the doctor who just got out of med school? She wants the 35-year-old. Why? Because the mother knows the pace of change in every profession, the advancement of technology, the things that we learn weekly, What does that mean for kids in school today? What it means for kids in school today is that up until 10, 15 years ago, you graduated from high school and you don't have a warm, emotional memory toward your years of school. You don't remember those years as being loving, as as school being a place where you felt known and safe and cared about. You don't have that emotional memory. School was... Not a pleasant experience. Guess what? That's not a disability anymore. Okay? That's not a disadvantage anymore. It's a disability because your kids are going to have to relearn their professions over and over and over again. Imagine that when you're negatively disposed toward learning new things. Wow, you got a whole lifetime of it. Congratulations. Okay. Uh, Let me, let me. OK, let me talk about this for a minute, see how we, um, OK. October 2008 to March of 2009, or maybe it's a longer than that, but you remember the, the 54% drop in the market? Stunning, OK? So in 2009, I was head of the Connecticut Association. I wondered, what will happen to my schools? I've got 95 schools. Am I going to have 95 schools in September? Huge plunge in the market. Huge loss of wealth in America. How is that going to affect independent schools? I'm nervous. We're all nervous. ISM decides this is a a, a for-profit company, but they've done a lot of work with independent schools. They decided that they would do a public service for us. They interviewed 9,000 independent school parents around the country. And they asked them two questions. Are you planning to go back? And if people said no, they'd ask why. People said yes, they'd ask why. I discovered that in Connecticut, 88% of those parents said we're going back. We're going back. Yeah, economically, our family may have been hit hard. Things are different, but we're going back. Nationwide, it was somewhat similar. What was fascinating to me is the four top reasons why those parents said they were going back. Okay, and listen to them. In ascending order, the fourth, number four. This is, this is amazing to me This is number four. Parents said, and they were given a choice of 20 reasons based upon the preliminary rounds of questions, 20 reasons why you might choose to go back. What are the most important qualities of an independent school? Number four, the skill of the faculty slash rigor of the program. Why is that fascinating to me? Because I'm thinking, skill of the faculty, quality of the program? You can get three reasons that top that, That's number four? It's number four. Okay, what's number three? The number three reason was parents said, we're going back because of the role that the school as a community plays. That the school is a powerful countercultural influence in the life of my child. Think about that. The school community is a powerful countercultural influence in the life of my child. I guarantee, you know, parents throughout history have been worried about popular culture. I'm sure Julius Caesar's mother worried about the toga lengths of the girls in his junior high. It's been around since the beginning of time. But I think we can all agree that popular culture, it's now a saturation experience. You know, you can say, Well, I'm not we're not going to own a television. Okay, lots of luck. Twenty years ago, you could in fact protect your child from The influence of popular culture didn't have a television. You can't do that now. It's the air we breathe. Popular culture is the air we breathe. It's never been more vulgar. Okay, And I will will tell you that uh, my own little personal experiment, I believe that I have a deliberately, carefully, thoughtfully restricted relationship with popular culture. I read the New York Times. I read the Wall Street Journal. I read a couple of professional journals. I only watch television sports and some news. That's it. Don't watch all the television, I don't go to the movies, I don't read magazines. And yet, and yet, I know who Kim Kardashian is. That's shocking to me. I know who she is. How could I possibly know who she is? I mean, I never gave permission for that tart to occupy, to occupy any of my brain cells. But Kim Kardashian lives in me. I know what she looks like. I know who she's married to. I know she's got a nutty sister and a brother. And, and I know people follow her lifestyle. So if, if a mature adult who is consciously monitoring the popular culture that I allow in, you think a 15-year-old has a prayer? But parents know. That schools like Far Hills, we know that culture, we know the music they're listening to, we know the people that they might admire, or at least that their generation admires, and we and and, and we can present we can present higher ways of thinking and knowing and caring. So that's number three. Number two, fascinating. Number two reason why parents are going back: the relationship my child has with my teacher. Okay, Skill of the teacher was number four. Relationship is number two. What's that all about? Let me tell you what it's all about. Independent schools, parents expect both. They expect a competent, professional teacher. They want that. But they also know something about motivation. And they know that, in my profession, A teacher walks into a classroom, closes the door, and makes the weather happen in that space. The teacher is the rainmaker. And I would have parents say to me at Grand Country Day, oh, Doug, my my son loves his teacher. And I would say, well, you know what? He needs to love his teacher. He needs to feel known and safe in that classroom. Because part of that safety, any kind of anxiety Social anxiety impedes learning. Social anxiety impedes learning. So in public schools, we put 30 kids in a classroom. We put them in a huge junior high, where many kids don't know that any adult really knows when they're absent or cares when they're absent. That's a design? Who designed that? That's the Fisher-Price mobile. Mobile, that's what it is. You know do, we not know, do we not know about how children learn and the emotional component of it? Sure we do. So where's that design live? It lives in, the, lives in the public budget. The first most important reason why parents said they were going back, and this can be confusing, the word is safety. It's not physical safety. It's when parents say, when my child walks into that school, my child feels safe. In every way, a child can feel safe. My child feels physically safe, socially safe, emotionally safe. And that is worth the price of tuition, because all of that is, in fact, a part. When people, when people think about learning and thinking, they think that that's a part of the brain that's entirely controlled by the cortex. And it's not. There's no such thing as thinking it doesn't also involve emotion. And we now know people who study leadership. You know, there are great books on leadership now. And what great books on leadership say is that there are very few really, really effective, noble, charismatic leaders who are not emotionally intelligent. They know who they are. They're self-aware. They understand the community they serve. They know the pulse, the beat, the mood, the rhythm. Um, I think I am. Let me just see if there's there's any compelling slide here. Which way am I going? I'm having. This is not my clicker, as you can see. Um, okay. Uh, I want uh, to. Th- this is this is. No. Okay. Let me. OK, let me, let me end with this, OK? Dr. Spock, OK, d- don't read it. Let me, let me introduce it, then I'll, OK, I'm going to end with it. I was born in 1950. My parents were the generation, the GIs came home from World War II, and my parents were the generation that moved out to the suburbs. OK, so for me and my friends, we were the first generation in American history that was mostly raised without the physical presence of our grandparents. Because our parents left Brooklyn. They left the Bronx. They moved out to the Levittowning of America. Eisenhower built the interstate highway system. People fell in love with cars. Gas was cheap. So my mother and father did not have their parents around the corner, first time in history. What replaced the grandparent as the source of assistance to the parents? Well, the largest selling non-biblical book in American history for 50 years until Harry Potter knocked it off the charts. And that was Child and Baby Care by Dr. Spock. So um, I was a Spock kid. I got an allowance when Dr. Spock said I should have an allowance. And I got the amount that it said on page 32 I went to bed at age nine when Spock said, I mean, it, my parents? And Spock, I mean, Spock got it wrong a few times. And, and, and Spock actually apologized toward the end of his life for a couple of things. One of the things he apologized for was his belief that infant care was largely largely a female thing, that, that men were just not built for it. Okay? And as the world changed, Spock actually said, I was wrong big time on this. Okay, but I, you know, I remember, I remember the first time I went into a men's room, in an airport, and I saw one of those koala tables on the wall, and I'm walking in. I'm in my 20s, you know, and I see this table, and, think, and I'm talking to a couple of guys in the bathroom. I said, "What, what is this?" And we fold it down, you know. And we all decided, well, you know, people have long layovers. They have to hang around. It's probably you could play cards. This is probably where you could, you know, you got a deck. You know, Mind boggling. What? We're going to change diapers? Yeah, yeah we're gonna, we can do it, guys. You know, major milestone. Um, but Spock, right before, toward the end of his life, he wrote a final statement to his readers. And it was, where am I? Am I going the right way? No, 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 OK. Tom, I'll give you all the slides, so OK. Here's his here's his last statement. The principal change that's occurred in my own outlook on child rearing has been the realization that what's making the parent's job most difficult today is today's child-centered viewpoint. By that, I mean the tendency of many conscientious parents to keep their eyes exclusively focused on their child, thinking about what he or she needs from them and from the community, instead of thinking about what the world, the neighborhood, the family will be needing from the child, and then making sure that he or she will grow up to meet such obligations. We are not raising children. We're raising adults. And when we think about that, when we think about our obligation to raise children who will not just care about learning, but who will learn about caring. You know, I've said to my college roommates, who all said to me, Doug, is it worth private school tuition? I mean, I live in a wealthy community. Why can't I just use the public schools? You know, a number of things that I would say to them, primarily having taught at every grade level, is that the important years, if you have X dollars to spend, Spend it on the early years. Spend it on the early years. Because by the age of 12, a child has made an unconscious decision about whether he or she is a learner, is capable of learning, can prevail over learning challenges, has made an unconscious decision about he or how she, he or she feels about learning by the age of 12. And what that means is that if you have a kid who's had a fabulous experience in learning, and then they go into a big public high school. And maybe it's a little bit impersonal. And maybe it doesn't provide the same kind of nurturing. That kid is going to find every opportunity there is to be found in that school, because the kid knows what it's like. I would say to parents, and I'll leave you with this, you know what, what can you give your children that will last forever? I'm a parent. I'm a grandparent. You can love them unconditionally. That will last forever. You can give your children a family name, family traditions, family stories, a family experience that they can be proud of, that will sustain them in the hard times in their lives, that will give them strength and courage in the hard times of their lives, because they remember who they are, where they're from. And third, you can give them the very best early start in learning, in developing a mindset, in developing an attitude, in developing motivations and intuitions. When I was at Greenwich Country Day School, I saw people living as well as people can live anywhere on the planet. The wealth was spectacular. And many, many wonderful people and many people who were philanthropic, who gave away an awful lot of their wealth anonymously. But what I saw was that the people, and that community was a terrific litmus test, the people who have the best lives, my believe, not necessarily the people who have the most comforts. The people who have the best lives, hands down, are the people who have the most Interests. That's what I've observed. Ron Howard was one of my parents. Ron Howard, the movie director. Okay. Ron Howard, I don't know how much Ron Howard is worth, but let me tell you, the money has so little meaning for him. Ron Howard has a million interests. He's interested in chess, he's interested in bird watching. I mean, he is interested in the Long Island Sound Restoration. Ron Howard has constantly got an idea, a project. I mean, what a dad. The money, you know, the, 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 his wealth played such a small role in the joy of his life. The joy of his life was fundamentally based upon all the stuff that he just found worth knowing. Kids who grow up with a, lo- grow up with a lot of interests, they're rarely bored. They're never lonely. They're able to stimulate themselves all the time. They're able to find beauty and meaning and comfort in the world around them, in the, in the arts, in science, in athletics, in music, in friendship, in faith. You know, They're able to meet people who share those interests. They're able to grow their network. You know, I, I, I left public education. It broke my heart. I cried. I sobbed the whole way from Mountain Lakes to Greenwich because I am a child of the 60s. I grew up in the civil rights era, and I was a hippie. I didn't look like a hippie. I looked like a choir boy, but I was philosophically a hippie. And my life was going to be save the child one at a time in public education. Never imagined that I would walk away from it. But I walked away from it when it became essentially a government, a government exercise and government goals. And, and because America has been embarrassed by international comparisons on international tests, you know, we're in the bottom half. So every time there's an international test and Americans are in the bottom half, okay, state governors and legislators, their anxiety attack continues. The real scandal here is not that public schools are so bad, although we're working real hard to make them worse. That's not the scandal. The scandal in those test scores is child poverty. Because America, unlike the other scores on the list, America has a very large percentage of children taking those tests who live in poverty. I, I, you know, I will tell you that the 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 money that you spend on your child's education when they are young, it's the best money you'll ever spend on anything. And I'll, and I will tell you that. Um, I, I, I practice what I preach, because I right now am not retired. And part of that is because I love what I do, but part of that is I'm paying for tuitions again. <laughs> second grade, kindergarten, pre-K. Um, so uh, thanks, thanks for coming tonight.